Well, good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me for Business, the Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. One of them is uh, improve your team's productivity. We're also going to have a chat with Christina with our Minute on Innovation. We're going to be looking at are we innovating to solve customers' problems or just innovating for the sake of innovating. But right now we're going to have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie from Baker Love Lawyers about the changes to citizenship laws. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. Thanks for having me again. Oh, you're welcome and you're sitting outside a courthouse in your car. I am, not by choice. That's where I find myself. So uh, just just as a bit of a refresher for our listeners, um, how do people from other countries become Australian citizens? Yeah, sure. So, look, the legal concept of an Australian citizen has been around for quite some time. It was actually created on the 26th of January 1949, so many years ago, and it implemented a piece of law which is now known as the Australian Citizenship Act of 2007. So from that particular date, uh, people born in Australia became Australian citizens automatically. Um, now, of course, at one point in time, we were all immigrants or descendants of immigrants uh, at, at one point in time, except for Indigenous Australians, of course. So laws were introduced to give citizens a legal identity, so as being Australian citizens, although at that time we were also classified as British subjects, and that didn't change until the 1980s. So the laws have come a long way since then. Um, but so since the laws were introduced formally in Australia more than 5 million people have become citizens through various means. So there are different types of applications depending on eligibility. So somebody might apply to get a conferral of a grant of citizenship or they might apply by descent. So if the person has an Australian citizen parent, for example, and there can also be citizenship grounds on the basis of adoption and things like that. So so what are these proposed uh, changes all about? Yeah, so... Some fairly significant changes were introduced by the federal government on the 20th of April this year, and they've become quite topical. They actually took us by surprise, even um, us lawyers and registered migration agents. We weren't quite expecting them. Um, So it was quite sudden, um, and whilst it's always been the case that strict criteria needed to be satisfied in terms of people applying for citizenship, it looks like the laws are going to be tightened up, uh, and that's if they pass through Peru. And I'll, I'll maybe touch on that a little bit later on. But at the very minimum, um, a person might be eligible for citizenship if they, if they satisfy certain criteria. And a whole host of changes are looking to come in, but these are some of the main ones that might have the most effect on applicants. So there's a permanent residency requirement. So somebody who holds a visa to be here, living here, working here, etc., in Australia, it needs to be a permanent residency visa. So This is possibly going to change quite dramatically in that an applicant will need to have been a permanent resident, and some people call this PR, um, for four years immediately before applying for citizenship. So this requirement used to be one year of permanent residency, so it's quite a big, significant Mm. change for for some Mm. people. Um, And then there's also certain criteria in relation to the total period of time being spent outside of Australia, so say if applicants are returning to their country of origin or elsewhere, 
they need to have been here present in Australia for a certain period of time prior to applying, and that requirement looks like it might be getting a little bit more um, onerous as well. Um, another big change relates to the English language requirements, and this is looking to be strengthened. So that's in terms of applicants satisfying a higher threshold of English language skills, I suppose, in terms of testing. Um, and there's also going to be additional requirements in relation to good character and proving an intention to reside here permanently in Australia, having those ties to Australia. Um, there's some new terminology called the Pledge of Allegiance to Australia, and that's, that's something that's new. Um, just in terms of um, the process there. Uh, and there's also going to be a bit of a strengthening up in relation to the citizenship test. So mm. some of your listeners may have heard of that in terms of certain questions that are asked of people applying for citizenship in terms of values and responsibilities and privileges, et cetera, of, of being Australian. And, and you know, I don't know if, you've, if anyone's had a look lately at the citizenship test. You can look at samples, but some of the current questions can be quite tricky in any case, and that's looking to be strengthened up as well. So what would you say is the most significant change that might have the biggest effect on for potential applicants? Um, oh, look, I think the biggest impact is probably going to surround the requirements in relation to this four years of permanent residency. Mm. Um, so, and also the increased English language requirement, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a sec, but just in terms of that four-year period, it's quite a change from from um, the, the current law, which, well, I guess if it, if it gets through, it won't be the current law any longer, but in terms of applicants expecting to just be permanent residents for a period of one year, um, and having satisfied all their visa requirements, et cetera, to get to that point, um, you know, some are saying that it's quite onerous to now require um, potential citizens to have four years of permanent residency prior to applying. Um, you know, and so the government's talked about, you know, strengthening the integrity of the citizenship program, et cetera, but others say it's gone too far. Um, and in relation to the English language requirement, um, people are saying that, well, you know, applicants visa applicants have already satisfied, you know, high standards of English in some cases in order to get their visas and they've already committed, you know, to the time and cost in relation to that. Um, mm. And there's also talk, so there's talk in relation to English language of being increased to effectively a university entrance level uh, for reading, writing, speaking, listening. And there's some concerns there about how some applicants, you know, for example, maybe refugee, humanitarian applicants, etc., might be able to cope with that. So it's fair to say that the changes, there, they're quite significant and, um, and they, they really might pose some problems for some applicants. So um, you've been saying that it's proposed and uh, it's got to get passed. When are we likely to see whether these changes are coming in? Yeah, so um, so the proposed legislation, or the bill as it's called, um, it had its first reading in the House of Representatives um, back in June, so mid-June this year, and just in the last week or so it was introduced into the Senate, um, so I guess the other side of Parliament. It's been mm. referred to a committee though in the Senate to have some discussion about it, and they're due to report, uh, I think the date's early September, um, in terms of, of their findings. So we should have a good indication about whether the laws will pass either in their present form and they are quite, you know, significantly changed or else whether they might be modified, watered down, etc. We should know that sort of in the later quarter of 
of this year. But at the moment, I, I guess it's the, the case of applicants being in a bit of limbo in terms of, well, do they satisfy the criteria now? Um, or if the new laws come in, whether they have to wait a fair few more years in terms of being eligible to satisfy the criteria. Given the, uh, the challenges that are going on in Parliament at the moment with uh, dual citizenship, are they likely to introduce a change to get people to only have one, one citizenship? Oh, well, possibly. I mean, that's another area of, I guess, citizenship laws that's very sort of dynamic and newsy right now. Um, so there's all this media attention on the parliamentarian issue, and that relates to, as you said, you know, another aspect of citizenship laws in terms of dual citizenship. And there are restrictions, you know, currently, and they've been around for many years in relation to members of of our parliament mm. not being able to hold dual citizenship and issues with allegiance and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, look, it's all very topical. It's a bit sort of watch this space, I think, <laughs> at this point. Um, applications have you know, been made to the High Court in relation yeah. to, to various people in, in terms of interpreting the Constitution and, and calls being made for audits of parliamentarians, etc., in relation to their status. So I guess it's um, just the, although it's a different, yeah, although it's a different sort of aspect in terms of these proposed changes to visa applicants in terms of citizenship. It's all very easy and issues in relation to Australia Day as well and citizenship mm. ceremonies. It's all very topical right now, and I think people are very interested in, in getting some sort of resolution on it. Well, thanks very much for your time, Rebecca, and uh, maybe we'll touch base with you again a bit later in the year when we see whether the changes actually take place and, and what happens. Thanks very much, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love Lawyers. Yes, uh, a lot of uh, challenges around the uh, citizenship laws. Time to pop over and have a chat with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm well yourself. I'm pretty good. I know I've, I've got a, had a couple of clients this week who would like to see a couple of their bills go up, up in, in a smoke. Puff of smoke. So up, up, up in a puff of smoke. So I thought I thought it might be a, a, a good topic for conversation today. So yep. um, just to fill you in on what happened, um, there was one particular person received a gas. No, we won't mention any companies because no, it's irrelevant because no, no. it happens across the board. Um, and what happened with this particular gas bill, this is an elderly gentleman that lives on his own. The only There is no actual gas um, usage, but what happens is he has to pay a nominal fee on gas because in the apartment building he lives, there is gas attached. So every apartment has it, so they have to pay a nominal fee even if they're not using it. He received a bill for 400 and something dollars, which was... Crazy, crazy, incredibly high, considering that he is a non-gas user. Yeah, so when he when he rang um, the gas company, they said, oh, look, you know, clearly there's been a mistake. We'll have to send it. We just estimated what it, what it was. Um, we'll come and we'll, we'll fill it up. Second example, water bill. Um, water bill comes in. It is double what the water usage normally is. Client rings up, says, hey, what's going on? Um, they say, oh, you know, we came and read the meter, this is what happened. Client goes out, reads the meter, realises that they've, they've, they've actually got the wrong, yeah, the wrong numbers on there. Mm. So the question is, how does all this tie into innovation? Um, mm. Why is it that we can't come up with a system that, that eliminates these user experience problems? And as you and I constantly discuss, how does all this come back to 
best possible um, best possible user experience that we can. And for me, that always comes back to design thinking principles. Yeah. So, what does the customer really need? Is the yeah. is the question, isn't it? And well, and you know, at the end of the day, every time somebody rings up with a complaint like this, um, every time there's extra paperwork, every time there's extra anything, you know, dealing with complaints, whatever, there's an increase in cost. So surely it would be in everybody's best interest, A, not to not to create irate relationships with customers, but B, also to eliminate the steps where these problems happen. So if we go back and we use the whole user experience platform, we go, this is a constant problem. I mean, I've heard about two of these issues within a 10-day period, mm. you know, and I'm just one one person. It made me want to go back and, well, I, and I will go back and check all my bills to make mm. sure that they are all accurate and correct. Why is it that we can't come up with an algorithm or a much easier system to read meters? Why are we still sending people out to either read meters? Why are we still allowing people to estimate readings um, in apartment buildings that then become way off, you know, get way off balance? Mm. Why can't we, with all the mobile phone technology, why can't we take a photo of the reading um, and text it in or email it in or, you know, I know yeah. there's, there's issues around security, etc. But can, can we not write algorithms, can we not create passwords as we do with other things that make this a much more fluid user experience process? So, some uh, power users do allow you to um, email in your reading, but they still come and do the uh, the actual reading about every three months. And, and as you say, there must be simpler ways of doing that with today's technology. But I think it gets back to, I think all of those those organisations must experience a high amount of customer complaints and therefore that's probably a good starting point to how can we innovate. That's right. And, and you know, go back to the drawing board, have a look at what the identify the problem, where are the issues happening, why are we misreading? Because the common perception out there is, oh, I'm just being ripped off, you know. Mm. So people will go, oh, no, they've just they've tried to pull the wool over my eyes. I actually don't believe in 99% of the cases that's the truth. I believe... Human mistakes happen, you know, these, these things, yes, we're, we're um, estimating um, gas usage or whatever it is uh, for particular individuals in apartment buildings, but how do we keep getting it so wrong, you know? Mm. So what is it? Go back, identify the problem, figure out from the user experience what might, what might actually be something simple that can be done. If there are identify, identify problem areas, what are potential solutions? You know, let's work through these things and then let's test and iterate, and as we it. say constantly. Yeah, test yeah. it. See what see what a possible solution is. Is there one apartment building? And you know how we say test small. You know, fail fast, test small, don't spend a whole lot of money. Mm. Why can we not go into one apartment building, um, do the test for a certain period of time, see if it works? Do one street. You know, we don't need to be doing masses of, of you know, we don't need to be doing suburbs, etc. for this, these kind of things to be tested. Mm. Well, thanks for your time again, Christina. We'll have a chat with something else next week. We shall, Julian. I look forward to it. Have a great week. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina there, yeah, we've often got those customer problems. Uh, great place to start looking for innovative solutions, isn't it? We've got time for one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This one is improve your team's productivity. As a manager, you may already have learned how to plan, prioritise and streamline your work. But how can you help your team members do the same? Start by setting a good example. Be smart about how you allocate the hours of your work day the meetings you attend, the emails you respond to and the projects you sign on for. 
so your team can follow your lead. Help set boundaries for your team by outlining key goals and analysing people's capacity to execute on them. Then meet with your team members one-on-one to communicate your top priorities and expectations. Tell each person the top few or two or three tasks that you want them to focus on and give them permission to eliminate or delegate unimportant tasks. Make sure that all meetings have clearly defined purpose and reserve plenty of downtime in shared calendars for getting actual work done. There's a couple of interesting little tips there from the Harvard Business Review tip. Well, thank you very much for your time today and uh, for listening to the program. I hope you enjoyed it. We've uh, spoken particularly about the changes to citizenship law. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to look at the changes to um, uh, the skills set that's out there in the workplace with Craig McGregor from Hunter Recruitment Group. We'll chat about innovation with Christina and we'll have some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Sir Richard Branson once said, a business has to be involving, it has to be fun and it has to exercise your creative instincts. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.